Well, we're looking at Second Peter, and of course, uh, you can see his name. In fact, he uses uh, his his childhood given name from his parents, as well as the name that Jesus gave to him. Obviously, it's written by Peter. I'm not going to get into the disputes on who's the human author of this particular book. But uh, you know about Peter, don't you? If anybody in the early church knew the importance of being on the alert against false teachers and false teaching, it's got to be the Apostle Peter. I mean, think about this guy. He had, what was he like in his early years? What does the Bible tell us? In his early years, he was uh, uh, often overconfident when danger was near, and then he would overlook Jesus' warnings at times. He, he was the kind of guy who would like to rush ahead when he should have been waiting, when he should have been alert and, and, and awake. He's sleeping. You know, that's just, he's doing the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing a lot of times. He slept when he should have been praying. He talked when he should have been listening. Foot was inserted in mouth when it should have been on the ground. And he was often careless. So this is a guy, he knew the importance of being alert. I think he learned his lesson. <laughs> when you read the books of First and Second Peter, I get the impression a guy who is a little more mature. He's, he's learned from Jesus. And he wants to help us learn as well. So this is a guy who's been there, he's done that, he's made lots of mistakes, he's failed. In fact, he even denied Jesus. But he learned from it, and he wants us to learn as well. So in this second letter of Peter, Peter's emphasis is changing. He, he wants us to know some things. A key word here is know and knowledge. He wants us particularly to have the knowledge of God. In fact, the word know or knowledge is used at least 13 times in this letter. The word, by the way, uh, for know and knowledge here doesn't just mean just a, a, a mere intellectual understanding of some truth. In fact, it goes far deeper than that. It's an experiential knowledge. It's, it's a participation in the truth. And in fact, it's, it's even called, it means a partnership. A partnership. Uh, like, like two married couples, you know, two becoming one flesh idea is what's going on here and so peter opens his letter here yeah he gives his his names and it's interesting he, he mentions he's a servant as well as an apostle of jesus christ so we, we we've got uh you know the practical aspect as well as the authority behind this letter here but then beyond that he goes to a description of the christian life and it's interesting, before he gets into the false teachers and their description of them, looking at the counterfeits, he wants to describe for us the true believers. Now, you might say, well, I thought this book was all about false teaching. Well, there's a lot of that. But really, I think the reason Peter does it in this order is the best way to detect error is to know the truth. <laughs> know the truth. I mean, if you study the truth, then the error is is blatantly obvious. Like like someone who who might study money, for example, and they they have to be able to detect counterfeit money. You can spend forever looking at all the counterfeit monies and and uh, still miss the truth. Better to study the real thing. Then the counterfeit is obvious. I think that's what Peter's trying to do here, and so. 
So Peter's going to make four important truths about the Christian life. He really wants us to avoid false teaching, and he's going to, he's going to show us our salvation. He's going to show us the practical life of the, Christ, of the Christian life. And so with that in mind, let's just read the text. So these are the words of the living God here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, in virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's Peter saying here? We just read a big, long paragraph. Let me just kind of summarize it here before we get into some details. So he's challenged believers here to take full advantage of the divine power and the promise of God, which made it possible then to participate in this divine nature. And then, because of that, you're able to overcome this corruption or this this moral depravity that's caused by the evil desires. And then based on the promise, this promised power that is, Peter's going to go on here to challenge Christians to then practice these qualities or characteristics of the divine nature. Why? Well, he ends by telling us that so so they would experience the, the assurance of eternal rewards. So that's where Peter's headed here ultimately getting to the eternal rewards and blessings of of the kingdom. And so here's the proposition. God wants us to, to know from this paragraph here today that God wants you to know your salvation and practice Christian virtues that you may avoid false teaching. Well, that's what Peter's trying to get across from this particular text. And he's got four truths that he's trying to share with us as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, number one, he says the Christian life begins with faith. Begins with faith. 
Peter, in fact, in, in verse 1 there, he, he calls it a faith of equal standing with ours. Notice ours is plural. It means that our standing with the Lord Jesus Christ today is the same as the apostles of yesterday. In fact, centuries ago. In other words, the apostles didn't even have an advantage over you and me. That, that's, you just dwell on that for a while and think about that. You, it, it's a powerful statement. But it begins with faith. But it's not just a, a, a random, senseless faith. In fact, for, what do I want you to see first of all here in verse 1 is that this faith is in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. The object of faith must be Jesus because He is described here as the Savior. He is the one who rescues. He is the one who delivers. From our greatest problem, in fact, being our sin. And then the curse and the guilt and everything that goes with that. And notice from the very beginning here, Peter affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ. This was not an issue with Peter. In fact, Peter labels Jesus as two things. Did you notice it? And he puts them together, so you can't miss it. He is God and Savior. (laughs) He is God and Savior. That clearly shows Peter believes in the deity of Jesus Christ. They're, They're not two different persons, by the way. It's one person. He's describing Jesus Christ, the God-man. He has two natures. And so this faith is in a person. It is in Jesus Christ. It's not in just faith in yourself or anything else, or just faith. It's in a person. Number two, your faith in Jesus then secures three spiritual possessions. Three spiritual possessions mentioned here. So we, we see the, the, the Lord Jesus has these spiritual assets, if you will, of righteousness, grace, and peace. So when you get Jesus, and by getting Jesus, I mean you become a believer, and your faith is put in Christ alone, you get his righteousness, first of all. So when you trust in him as your Savior, Christ's righteousness then becomes your righteousness. You get this right standing before God that you didn't have before. It's not something you could earn. It has to be given to you as a gift. And, of course, you don't earn gifts. You're given gifts. All you do is receive it. And so that's, that's a beautiful truth, that you have this new standing, this right standing before God because of your faith in Christ. But number two, the, the second spiritual asset here is grace. Now, grace is God's unmerited favor to someone who is undeserving of that favor. So God in His grace then gives you what you don't deserve. Well, there's a lot of things we could talk about there. But don't forget that. Peter loves grace. He's talked a lot about it in his first letter. He hasn't forgotten about it here. And so there's there's a third spiritual asset that comes to those whose faith is put in Christ alone, and it's peace. Peace. So the re- the result of salvation is, one of the things is peace. And, and that comes in two ways, by the way. There's peace with God, and you also get the peace of God. Now, that's a little different, but God's, God's grace and, and peace here, it says, are multiplied toward us as we walk in Him, and, and we're trusting in His promises. 
It's just it just bubbles over. It's it's more and more and more. It's more than you can even comprehend. So your faith in Jesus secures those three possessions. Peter wants you to know the first truth here about salvation coming through faith. But number two, the second truth is that salvation is then sustained by God's power. He saves you and he keeps you. <laughs> okay? It's, it's the whole, the whole package deal. As he says in verse three, it's his divine power has granted to you, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But I want you to notice the pronoun his there. That's referring to Jesus. His divine power is Jesus' power has granted this. So here's my first point under this truth that salvation sustained by God's power is this, that Christ's power has provided everything a believer needs for life and godliness. Now, what, what is the, the point of that? Well, Christ's power is the source of the believer's sufficiency and perseverance through the Christian life. And you say, well, what is this life that Peter's talking about here? This life here is eternal life. So he's giving he's given you everything you need for eternal life. In other words, the genuine Christian is eternally secure in his salvation. You are eternally secure. You can't keep yourself. You need someone to do that for you. And Christ says, "I'm going to do it. I'm taking this responsibility on me. It's on my shoulders." And so what is this godliness that Christ has provided here? for us because he says he's providing everything for life and godliness what's that well to be godly is basically living obediently toward god doing what god wants you to do not doing what he doesn't want you to do and so peter means that the genuine believer here ought not to ask god for something more as if there is more (laughs) there isn't because he's giving you everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need anything more to be godly because you have all the spiritual resources available to you. You don't need a second blessing. You don't need to do something else. You have it all. Because when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt you, that's if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you, then you have it all. There, there's not something else to come. You have everything needed for life and godliness. Number two. Then Christ calls us to this life of godliness. It's not something we're just naturally attracted to. So how does God, how does God do this? How does Christ do this? He does it, verse three says, by his own glory and excellence. He calls you to this godly life, an obedient life to him, basically, through himself. Christ attracts people here through his own glory. That's his majesty, his glorious person, who he is, his, his characteristics. He, he attracts us because of who he is, as well as his moral excellence. And so when you see excellence there, it's his moral excellence. He, he is the epitome, the, the greatest example of one who is excellent and, and perfect. And so he calls us to this life of godliness. But he also gives us number, in verse 4, we we see that Christ has given us his promises. 
He's given us his promises. You say, well, what promises is he referring to there in verse 4? These precious, it says, precious and very great promises. And they are. Well, we, we could talk a lot about these, but I just was thinking some of the things Peter's already written about in chapter, or sorry, in his first epistle that uh, Christians can share in Christ's moral victory over sin in, in this life. And we share in his glory's victory over death in, in eternal life. Peter talked about that in, in his first letter. And then because of the promise of the, the new birth, he wrote about chapter 1, and, and the promise of God's protecting power and the promise of God's enabling power, then we see here in Second Peter that a believer then can participate in the divine nature. That's a promise. You can become more like Christ. That's the idea. So if you're participating in the divine nature, it means you are being conformed into the image of Christ. Well, in addition, we, it goes on to say, then you can escape the corruption or this moral decay that's in the world that's caused by evil desires. Well, John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress pictured this well, I think, and, uh, with the two pilgrims that were there. Uh, they were captured by giant despair. They were thrown in Doubting Castle. Uh, the two pilgrims, by the way, are named Christian and Hopeful. Giant despair is beating them up. He wants them to commit suicide. Fortunately, they didn't. And so there they are. They're languishing in uh, Doubting Castle, in, in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And Christian has forgotten that he has a way to release himself out of Doubting Castle and to escape giant despair. He has the means to escape. And here's what John Bunyan says in his book. He says, Christian said to Hopeful, what a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. And then Christian took the key of promise. He had a key. And it was called the key of promise. And he pushed it into the lock of the dungeon door. And the bolt opened and the door came open and they walked out into the castle. And then they went to the door leading to the castle yard. The key opened that door also. And now they came to the great iron gate leading outside. The lock to the gate was exceedingly difficult, yet they unlocked it and pushed open the gate to make their escape. But the gate made such a creaking sound that it woke the giant who jumped out of bed to pursue his prisoners. And then he was seized by one of his fits and he lost the use of his limbs. And the prisoners ran to the king's highway where they were safely beyond giant despair's jurisdiction. John Bunyan understood this. He was in prison. <laughs> he could have walked out of prison. But he would have had to compromise. And he didn't, praise God. God used that time in his life to write the Pilgrim's Progress. Peter understood this truth as well, and he's desiring all of God's people that we would keep away from doubt and despair. How do you do that? Practically, how do you do that? How do you defeat doubt and despair? You defeat it with God's promises. The promises of Christ. 
there's even hymns that talk about this, and I'll just sing two verses of of one that talks about the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fall, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. That's what you have to do. You need something that's that's more powerful than your doubt and despair. And of course, that's God's promises. But verse 4 also tells us these promises then enable Christians to partake in God's nature. You're able to partake in God's nature. What does that mean, though? Well, the precious promises of salvation result in becoming God's children in this present age. And, and then you're able to share in God's nature by possess, the possession of eternal life. So Christians don't become little gods, like some people think. No, you don't become a little god. But you you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You're not a god, you're not even a little god, but you have God in you. And so those promises of God enable you to become a partner. That's what it means, you're a partner with God. Well... The third truth Peter wants you to know is that salvation is confirmed by Christian virtues. Your salvation is confirmed by these Christian virtues, or as my Bible calls them, qualities. Starting in verse 5, it mentions a whole list of various qualities or virtues. Now, where there is life, there has to be growth. There must be growth. And, and so Peter's talked about the new birth, this the, it being a partaker in God's nature. But the new birth is not the end. It's a, it's a, it is the beginning, in fact. And God gives His children all they need to live godly lives. He's told us that. And so His children then have to apply themselves. God's children must be diligent to use the means of grace. He's provided those things. You, have, you understand this, don't you? That spiritual growth is just not automatic. Just doesn't just happen automatically. It actually requires cooperation with God. It requires the application of spiritual discipline. In fact, we're commanded, and it's interesting, uh, Philippians chapter 2 combines, combines these two ideas together. Philippians 2, it says, work out your salvation. All right? That's your part. But then it says, in verse 13, it's God who works in you. <laughs> right? So you work out your salvation while God works in you. Right? That's, that's how it works. Can I fully explain that? No. It's just we see them both here together. So salvation's confirmed here by these Christian virtues. Well, let's just dive in and we'll see in verse 5 that, that the Christians must live for Christ with maximum effort. Not an option, it's a command in the Greek language. I want you to notice though in verse 5, it starts with the phrase, for this very reason. Why, why that? Well, what reason is he talking about then? 
for this very reason. He, he's just been talking about the, these God-given blessings and promises in verses 3 and 4. So the believer cannot just be apathetic. You can't be just self-satisfied. You can't drift. And so, there is such an abundance of divine grace here, it calls for total dedication on the Christian's part. The text actually says, make every effort. Make every effort. That just means you're to make maximum effort, putting your all into it. It's a total dedication. See, the Christian life here is not lived without effort. Everything you do is because of God's power in you, but you're commanded to make maximum effort. And even though God's poured His power into the believer here, the Christian himself here is required to, to, to use the spiritual disciplines. Make every discipline effort. It's interesting, the text here also tells us to supplement. Now that uh, might be a little confusing. Supplement just means you're to give generously. Give generously. In Greek culture, the word was used for a choir master. In those days, the choir master was responsible for supplying everything that was needed for his choir. He was responsible for everything. That's how it was used in Greek. So the word never meant to just equip sparingly. The idea was to supply generously to to meet the needs so they could do their performances. The idea here is God's given us faith. He's given us the virtues necessary to, to live a godly life. We add to those by our diligent devotion. We're to supply these things and do it diligently. And number two, we, we see the Christian virtues then grow out of saving faith. But they're moving toward a climax. And in the climax, the last virtue mentioned here is love which some have called the supreme virtue. It's, it's the, the, the very one that Jesus summarized all the Ten Commandments when He said, love God and love people. But notice the Christian virtues, first of all, they're growing out of saving faith. It mentions faith there for this very reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith. So let's be clear. What is this faith? This faith is in Jesus Christ. It's what separates a Christian from all other people. Uh, you could call this faith a trust, a belief in, in a person, in Jesus. What it does is it brings you from death to life, from an unbeliever to a believer. It, it brings you into the family of God. It's, it's the foundation of all the other virtues in the Christian life. You'll never have those other virtues there without saving faith. If you're not in Christ, then these things aren't you. So what are these Christian virtues? Well, the first one mentioned there, coming out of saving faith, is virtue itself. Just virtue, general virtue. Just Some Bibles even translate it excellence. Uh, to the Greek philosophers, it, it meant the fulfillment of a thing. When anything in nature fulfills its purpose, uh, the Greek philosophers would say that's excellent. It is, it is virtue for it to fulfill its purpose. But the word was also used to describe the power of their false gods to do their heroic deeds. And so uh, the Greeks would use it in, in relation to the land producing the crops. Uh, 
they would say if the land's producing crops, well, that's excellent. That's, that's virtue. Why? Because it's fulfilling its purpose. Uh, if a tool is fulfilling its purpose and doing what it was designed to do, that's excellent. Because the tool's supposed to do that. And you kind of carry that over to the Christian life. The idea is a Christian is excellent or is virtuous, if you will, when the Christian does what the Christian was designed to do. Well, then you've got to ask the question, what are you designed to do? What am I designed to do? Well, you're designed to glorify God, to give the right opinion of God. Why? Because you have God's nature within you. You have God's nature within you. So, so when, when you do that, you're showing excellence. Why? Because you're fulfilling your purpose. That's virtue. Second one mentioned there's knowledge. That's just a practical knowledge. Uh, you might call it discernment. It refers to the ability to handle life successfully. It's kind of similar to wisdom. Uh, being able to, to take the knowledge and use it is, uh, is the idea there. It's not just a bunch of head knowledge. You've probably met people like that who, who know things in their head. But then when it comes to living it out in practical ways, they're absolutely useless. Right? <laughs> right? You ever met someone like that? That's not what knowledge is. Okay? Knowledge is being able, being able to use truth in practical ways. But then it goes on to mention self-control. That just literally means holding oneself in. In Peter's day, self-control was used of athletes who would uh, self-restrain themselves. They would use self-discipline. And so the idea here is a Christian is in control of his flesh, of his desires, of his body. Uh, if, you're, if your body's out of control, just doing whatever it, it wants, then you're not self-controlled. The next one is steadfastness. Uh, this might be translated patience or endurance. Just the idea is you're, you're, you're steadfast in doing the right thing, doing what God wants you to do. Uh, you're not giving in to temptation. You're not, you're not uh, giving in to, to despair or to trials. It's somebody who has staying power, right? The tsunamis of life hit you and you're, you're not moving, all right? This is the kind of a Christian who's willing to die for Jesus, to die for the faith. As I've been studying uh, church history, I've, just, I've been moved by so many stories. Let me just, I don't often mention women in, in, the, in church history stories, so let me give you one today. I heard a remarkable example of this steadfastness, this endurance. Back in uh, 17th century France, there was a, a woman by the name of Marie Durant, young woman, 14 years old, was actually charged with being a Huguenot. You say, well, what's a Huguenot? That's, well, that's just basically a nickname for a French Calvinist. Marie was told to renounce her faith. Of course, she would not because she was steadfast. And so, uh, not only her, but there, there was about 30 other uh, French Huguenot women who were eventually imprisoned in a tower, not just for a week, but in fact they were imprisoned for 38 years. 38 years. 
And here's somebody 14 years old. Try to imagine this. Put yourself in her shoes. 14 years old, not married, enters prison as an attractive, marriageable woman. But of course, through all those years in prison, she loses those attributes. And because she's not renouncing her faith in the Lord Jesus, she's, she's stuck there. And then it's interesting, if you were to go there, apparently from what I've read, visitors can actually go inside the prison and they can see a word inscribed on the wall of the prison in French, resiste, which means resist. Resist, good word for uh, perseverance, being steadfast. Now here's, here's someone who is able to resist, to be steadfast for 38 years. That's an example of real perseverance. She gave God her total allegiance, even though it may have cost her her life. In fact, I would imagine being in prison for 38 years might be even worse. But she was steadfast. But the the text goes on to mention the next virtue of godliness. Godliness just means godlikeness, Christ-likeness. In the original Greek, the word just meant someone who worshipped well. Knew God, knew how to worship God. It described a person who was right in his relationship with God as well as other people. text goes on to mention brotherly affection. This is just a, a fervent, practical caring for others' needs. And then the last one is like, like the highest one, if you will. It's love, agape love. It's desiring the highest good of others. It's the kind of love that God exhibits towards sinners. When Romans 5, 8 says, God loved us while we were yet sinners. And so spiritual growth begins with saving faith. It ends with love. How is that? Well, the Holy Spirit's the only one who can produce these virtues in you. Read Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> there's there's a quite a connection here between Galatians 5 and this text. So how or so so he's he is the one, in other words, doing the work in you. You can't do this on your own. But he's doing the work, but it's cool because Peter tells us the fourth truth that with this, this there's, there's a spiritual growth that results in abundant blessings. God does the work and you get blessed. <laughs> I don't quite understand how that works. I mean, he's doing the, he's doing it, but we got to make maximum effort as he's doing this work in us. But look, but look at some of the things Peter says here. Starting in verse eight, we see uh, that a growing Christian is effective and productive. Verse 8 kind of gives the negatives. If, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, if these, these virtues, these qualities are yours, and they're increasing and multiplying and growing, then the positive is you're going to be effective and fruitful. Well, that's a blessing. So the more we become like Jesus Christ, the more the Holy Spirit then can use you. You get to be used by the Holy Spirit. You get to be His witness. You, 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 you get to serve God in, in various means. And you become better and better, more useful, more productive, more fruitful 
is the more you grow in Christ. So the believer is not growing then. What's he like? What are you like? <laughs> well, you're going to be ineffective. You're going to be unfruitful. You might say you're going to be useless. <laughs> in other words, the knowledge of Jesus is producing nothing practical in this person's life. You're going to be useless to the Savior and you're useless to the saints. <laughs> right? You're useless to the Savior and useless to the saints if you're not a growing Christian. Number two, Peter tells us a growing Christian confirms their eternal salvation. Your growth doesn't save you, but it shows that your tree is alive. Does that make sense? The fruit on the tree shows the tree is alive. No fruit on the tree shows the tree is dead. Right? That's Jesus taught that in other places. But Peter puts it this way in verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So the believer who's pursuing godliness is guaranteeing to himself, to yourself, by the, the spiritual fruit that you are called and you are chosen by God to salvation. In other words, the, as I've already said, the fruit on the tree is showing that the tree is alive and is growing. Very important. Jesus said, by the fruit you will know them. How do you know someone's a Christian? By the fruit. <laughs> right? That's that Because you can't look at the inside of the tree. You can't really look inside the roots and see what's going on in there. Only God can do that. But Peter also tells us that a growing Christian will not backslide. See, you're, you're, you can only, you're, you're finite. You're not like God who's everywhere, right? You can only go in one direction. Are you going forward or backwards? Going forward or backwards? A growing Christian's going forward. And when you're going forward, you can't go back. And that's why Peter says, this calling and election is going on here is being confirmed by practicing these qualities. When you do, you will never fall. The Greek word for fall there just means to trip up, to experience a reversal. And the point is this, my friends. One who is mature in Christ is not going to trip up in the spiritual life as easily as someone who is immature. If you're not growing... You're, you're in trouble. You're going to be tripped up. You're, you're going to experience reversals. Because that's just, in, in the Christian life, it's, it's a forward battle. Everything's coming against you. You think you can just drift? No. You can't. You can't drift in the Christian life. Because if you're drifting, you're going back. The growing Christian will not backslide, though. And also, number four, a growing Christian will, will be welcomed home into Christ's kingdom. That's the last blessing that Peter was looking forward to as he's probably here in Rome, knowing he's probably going to die soon. He, he's probably expecting the Roman soldiers to come through his door at any moment. He's probably hoping he could finish this letter. And he says in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So any growing Christian can look forward to this day. You can look forward to an abundant entrance into heaven is what he's talking about. Now the Greeks used the phrase to describe the welcome of an Olympic champion coming home who who would receive a, a glorious welcome home. They won whatever their event was at the Olympics. We we see this thing still going on today, don't we? You know, our New Zealand Olympic champions come home and there might be hundreds of people at the airport with signs and and gifts and they cheer when they come out of the customs, right? They get a welcome home and depending on what sport they're in, they might even get a parade down the, you know, downtown Auckland or something. Who knows, right? They get a glorious welcome from New Zealand. And that's the idea here. Every believer is going to arrive in heaven. Some are going to have, of course, more glorious welcomes than others. Not everybody's equal in, in what we do in this life. It's the kind of thing that, that uh, I don't know how else to explain it other than use it in illustration from the book of Acts. The first martyr mentioned in the books of, book, book of Acts was Stephen. He experienced Christ's welcome when he was martyred. In fact, somehow he was able to see Jesus. He was able to see heaven as he was dying. And in Acts 7, verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So God gave him that, that ability to, to, to see that. Whether it was with his eyes or mind, I'm not exactly sure. But he, he saw it, he knew it, and it was, it was real. And so he was, as he died, he was welcomed into Christ's presence. Well, again, John Bunyan takes up that very theme in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. He describes it through the eyes, through the, the experience of Mr. Mr. Valiant for Truth. Bunyan mentions this, by the way, with several of his his characters, Christian, Christian crosses over the river into the celestial city and others in the story, but Mr. Valiant for Truth is not so well known by many people. But Bunyan in, in his book, he says that it was, it was, it was heard abroad that Mr. Valiant for Truth was taken with a summons and his pitcher was broken at the fountain. When he understood it, he called to his friends and he told them of it. And he said, I am going to my father's house. And though with great difficulty I got here, yet now I do not repent of all the trouble I have been through to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles. Who now will be my rewarder? When the day that he must go forth was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which he went, and he said, Death, where is your sting? And he went down deeper, and he said, Grave, where is your victory? And so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Now, it's probably not going to happen like that for you. <laughs> okay. But don't miss the point, my friends. As Peter says in verse 11, there's richly provided for all believers an entrance 
into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to think about. It's a wonderful promise to believe. How wonderful it must be to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I try to imagine it and my brain just doesn't do it justice. But I hope you'll believe it. Peter believed it. And it must have helped strengthen him as he was nailed to the cross. Because history tells us that Peter did die in Rome. He was crucified. He didn't believe he was worthy to die as Jesus. And so they told him, turn me upside down. Well, that must have been worse. But he believed in God's grace and his sustaining power through it all. He believed that he was going to have a rich welcome into Christ's kingdom. And he so firmly believed it that he was willing to die upside down. Unbelievable. So my friend, as Peter believed, you too can believe, I hope you do, that you can experience this welcome. But it only comes to those who are in the faith. Only to those who are in the faith. Their faith if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and this also says, if your faith is growing, if you are growing and these fruit of the, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life and, and it, it, it is continually being practiced. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it is being practiced and you are in the faith. And if you persevere in this faith, then Scripture says you will be welcomed by Christ into His kingdom one day. So may God help us to avoid false teaching by knowing our salvation, and practicing the Christian virtues. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would You enable us through Your grace to do what we cannot do, that we would believe in Christ. Our faith, our trust would be in Him and in Him alone for salvation and for everything else in our lives. If we can believe Him for eternal life, May we believe you for everything else. So may we continually practice these virtues that are mentioned here. May your Holy Spirit cause us to grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be growing Christians. May we be genuine Christians. May we be steadfast, persevering Christians who love you, love other people. So may we stand on your promises. May they enable us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We, as, uh, as the false teaching comes and the teachers, these false teachers try to tickle our ears that we would know the truth so well that the false teaching would be obvious, that we would not fall, that we would not stumble, that we would not go in reverse not backslide in any way. Cause us to know the truth so well that we would we would keep going forward and we would keep standing on the promises. We would keep pursuing Christ. Enable us to please you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.